Is this going to be like a huge technical difficulties day? It's, I mean, <laughs> it seems like it. Because I can't do that right now. <laughs> it's going right now, though, so. Okay. If you guys are good, then I'm rolling. I'm rolling. I'm rolling. Okay. Guys, I'm so sick of technology. We should have just done this in the studio. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. we can now. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the Luddite Show. <laughs> uh, we should do a preface for this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we taped an episode with our mutual friend Owen Korzik recently about the relationship of mind and body. And at the time, I think I was in this place where I was sort of resigned to just never being in the body, just always avoided because there's nothing but panic and pain there. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know if this is true, but I've, I've certainly felt like I made a lot of excuses during that episode, or at least like talked very academically and theoretically about why it was okay to just avoid feeling um, and now I'm in very much the opposite frame of mind because Joe and I have been talking for the last few months about this mind and body stuff. And I think all of the concerns that I had and all the excuses that I were making were valid for the space that I was in. Mm. But I also think that I'm trying to evolve and grow as a person and as someone who would like to feel things yeah. <laughs> the way that you should properly feel things. <laughs> And so now with like a little bit more research and a little bit more effort, I'm starting to foster a relationship with my body again and foster the ability to process emotions through the practice of embodiment, which is a long practice and a overdue practice for me. But um, And it'll take a long time, I think, if I keep this practice up to mm. see the results that I should. But... So we're going to do, we're going to release these back to back. I think it's kind of a nice contrast and a nice way to show sort of the evolution of thought between a time when we were kind of talking about this theoretically to a time when we're talking about like our experience trying to engage with the mind-body connection. Could you refresh me on what felt like a, like a cop-out, like what you felt like you were kind of glossing over with theories? Oh, just like... Feeling is so hard because, you know, of the history of hypochondria. Oh, yeah. Because okay. of like any time that you have sort of traumatic memories of checking in with your body and, oh, yeah. something's wrong, I'm going to freak out. Okay. That was what I, I would considered a cop out. Again, I think that there's validity to it as well. Yeah, definitely. Let's just say for the sake of argument that <laughs> it wasn't uh, a good place to arrive at. No, yeah. that makes sense. So. It very seldom is. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh... um, but Joe is the one that kind of, we started talking sometime last winter about your shoulder pain, your tendonitis, and how this physical pain that manifests in our bodies is often the result of mental and emotional stress. Right. So um, I kind of started working on this type of stuff with my therapist, and he told me, about this thing called TMS, which is an acronym for something, but I, I forget it 
off the top of my head. It was developed by this guy named uh, Dr. Sarno. He's a psychologist, and uh, he theorized that a lot of the chronic pain that Americans are experiencing, which has been an upward trend within mm. the past, you know, however many years, he theorized or hypothesized that these things may be caused by repressed emotion. Repressed emotion can range from resentment to anxiety to your core fears that you fear that you feel uh, consistently, which usually stem from things that happened to you in childhood or things that happened to you in your past. So he theorized that if you are to feel these emotions properly, that you can alleviate a lot of the physical symptoms of things such as tendonitis, irritable bowel syndrome, back pain, like all sorts of ailments that are all too common nowadays in a society where we pretty much encourage people to repress emotion. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that before. It sounds almost like witchcraft, but like, <laughs> you know, it could be, you know, it, it's one of those things where it's like, if it doesn't cure you 100%, it couldn't hurt. Yeah. To kind of think of your pain, think of flare-ups mm -hmm. as a way of your body trying to distract you from feeling your emotions properly. Mm -hmm. It's very common with people who are perfectionists, like people who have always been wanting to do well at everything. That kind of mindset lends itself to this TMS thing. And let me, uh, let me make sure I know what TMS stands for. Tension Myositis Syndrome. Okay. And, uh, you know, he had this program where he would uh, try to treat TMS through mindfulness, journaling, forgiving your past self mm. for anything you may resent about yourself, mm. and uh, also to use the pain as an emotional barometer. So mm. when you do have a flare-up, most likely there's something going on right now that is causing that flare-up and or making it worse. Mm -hmm. And so he just kind of uses this method of, of treatment mm. which seems unorthodox but i can say for myself having tendonitis and earlier in the pandemic i had a host of different physical symptoms that my therapist was saying to me like you know maybe you should start to dig into your core fears and mm. see, see what might be contributing to it and uh i can say it, it's really helped it's really helped me along how is your tendonitis doing now that you've been engaging in that practice? It's about 50% better, which, okay. I mean, it's not insignificant. And, That's not nothing. And mm. the thing is, when it does flare up, I think to myself, I'm like, okay, what's going on in my life at the moment? And which one of my core fears is coming up mm. and maybe contributing to that? Mm. See, and the thing is, it, it does sound a little weird. It sounds a little... Uh, <laughs> It sounds, because like, you know, people will be like, mind-body connection, there's no real connection between physical symptoms and your mind, but um, I think Sarah Silverman on the Conan show, I, I think I told you this, Jill, Sarah yeah. Silverman was on Conan O'Brien's show, and she said it best, she was like, if there is no mind-body connection, then how do you explain nervous shits? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that is hard to argue with. 
Yeah. So it's interesting. Here you are feeling the unwanted pain in the body. And I was coming more from the angle of, well, I just don't feel anything. <laughs> I don't, like, I'm so not there. I'm so just out of it all the time. Not mentally, like not that I'm in a fog, but it's kind of like my body's in a fog and, and mentally I'm fine. Like my capacity for, for thought and intellect is, is just fine, but I will intellectualize my way out of feeling and I will process emotional information intellectually. So that's what I'm kind of trying to not do anymore. And I haven't really struggled with the chronic pain so much, at least not in any ways that couldn't be fixed by like changing the shoes that I wear or, you know, like actually changing my gait and posture and, and those kinds of issues. But yeah, it's, it's interesting that we came from, came to this from kind of opposite angles, but as we've been talking, it's not like we've been engaging in the same practice at all, but like when we're on the phone, we'll kind of just talk about, well, this is kind of what I've been experiencing with the mind body connection and just having somebody to kind of bounce those ideas off of, even when we don't have the same, we kind of do have the same goal in mind, which is just peace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, inner peace, but, but without the same ailment, you know, without the same sort of inception of why it's necessary to figure out that mind body connection. I'm very much trying to rebuild it and you're trying to rewire it. Well, it's like a, it's, you're just trying to connect your mind to your body and I'm trying to connect my body to my mind. Interesting way to put it, yeah. I Mm. suppose. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you've had a history of fear of illness or fear of other things is that Mm -hmm. and you feel as if you've almost adapted to that by trying to intellectualize any little physical sensation that you may be experiencing is that that far off it's close um it's more yeah if i do feel a physical sensation that is unwanted then i intellectualize that and that's actually a very helpful way to deal with hypochondria when i say that i process emotional information intellectually, what I mean is that when there is emotional information, you are supposed to process it through your body because that is supposed to separate. There's supposed to be a separation between feeling and emotion, Mm -hmm. right? So I'll give an example of this. Like recently, I won't go into detail, but there was a reason that I was a little bit upset, right? And I had kind of an instantaneous reaction which was just like, whatever, I'm okay with this. Then I'm like, no, don't do that. Dwell in it a little bit. Stay with it. Right. How do you feel in your body? There was discomfort. There was a little bit of just like heart racing, tension in the shoulders, like a lot of just, I don't want to, how do I get out of this? You know, not panic, but just I'm in a tight spot and I feel a little bit of pressure and I it's hard to explain what it what it actually felt like in my body, but the point is that I did feel it, and I gave myself the time and the space to feel it. Mm. So there's feeling, 
And then I was able to separate that from emotion. So the emotion was I had some fear and some insecurity. Any reason that this thing would have caused me to fear insecurity is an old wound. It's ancient. You know, it's, it's old, old stuff. But so often we combine feeling and emotion. And I'm not sure that everyone in like a clinical sense would agree with this terminology that I'm using. But we combine feeling and emotion. So it's like, here's all the information. Well, I'm angry. And so we get the anger, we get the aggression, we get, you know, we just become a, a, a tank of bad vibes, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, um, but really if you can process it through the body first without reacting intellectually or without reacting emotionally, then you'll have a much better sense of what's going on because as you will learn by looking into the concept of embodiment, the body wants comfort, you know? The body is reacting to these sort of negative or positive or whatever they are, stimuli. And it's reacting to that in, in the way that it has been taught to over time or maybe in the way that it naturally does. And if it is negative, then it wants comfort, you know? And it wants to kind of be processed. I think a lot of the time we don't process this somatic information, we go right to what we can control with our minds. It's like trying to go around something when the easiest way is to go through it. Right. Mm-hmm. Because going around something, you know, it's a larger perimeter than mm-hmm. if you were to just actually feel it properly and try to name it. Yeah. And try to understand what that reaction may be coming from. Mm-hmm. Because he talks a lot about forgiving your childhood self or whatever. So, like, a lot of these formative experiences can make us react adversely to uh, certain situations in our lives. Mm-hmm. It can make mm-hmm. it so that we don't react, quote-unquote, properly. There's no real uh, wrong way to feel something. But, like, just to be able to name it and recognize why you may be having this adverse reaction to it. Yeah. What, what in your past may have made you feel that way about the situation you are in the present? Mm. I think that's kind of a cool approach too, because it like going back to how you said these types of approaches and theories can seem a little bit hocus pocusy yeah. at first glance. Some of that I feel like is the same reason that, you know, the, when we look at like Freud ideas and stuff like that, like those are, often perceived to be bullshit now because they are, but it's because there's no process beyond where his process ends. It's just this shit's because of your childhood and that's that. And it doesn't take into account that like so many of these approaches can be used to just learn the terrain, like to consider like what you do with that information is, is another whole thing, but naming things doesn't necessarily mean that your pain is going to go away or that you can, get rid of where it came from or something. It just means like you're charting a little bit of the territory. You're, you're adding a little bit more color to the map and then you still have to do something with that information. So I feel like that's kind of an overlooked part of a lot of these approaches that I personally find really intriguing and, and really powerful whenever you approach pain this way. Mm. Yeah. Cause it puts you back in the driver's seat, but now you know kind of what you're up against to some extent and you can choose the best way that suits you to deal with what you're going through. And like, Regardless of whether it's a sound method of treating these pains, it's like 
yet to be seen. I mean, there's a lot of testimonials about it. Like, if you go online, you find a, a lot of people who have pretty much cured themselves of a lot of ailments simply mm. by naming their emotions, feeling them properly, journaling, meditating, like, practicing mindfulness. What it comes down to for me is, like, it can't hurt. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It yeah. can't hurt. Plus, think about, like, if it's a correlation thing versus a causation thing sometimes too. Like again, a lot of these theories get framed as like all of this, like your appendicitis is being caused by your childhood trauma. <laughs> it's like, no, probably not. But your pain that you're feeling that you think is appendicitis might be caused by the posture that your childhood trauma has put you in yeah. where, you know, cause even think about it physically. Like if you're, if you have like PTSD and you're going through your day where like, you're not actively thinking about, specific traumatic events, but you're just a little bit keyed up. You're just a little bit freaked out. Like things are just kind of under your skin and you're not always acutely aware of it because it's always there and you can't physically be acutely aware of it and like drive a car and like do shit. So, you know, things get kind of like put below the surface out of necessity. You will be tense, you know, like your shoulders will be held a different way. You might eat mm -hmm. a little bit too fast. You might not breathe as deeply as you should countless things you might not sleep as well so your eyes might strain which could give you a headache like you might walk a little faster or slower or a little funnier you might carry heavier loads you might try to self-punish at times without quite realizing it and end up say i can carry all this shit whatever and you yeah. know you might just do stuff that you wouldn't ordinarily do or that you wouldn't naturally given you know if you just existed in a vacuum that your body would not like choose to participate in like yeah there's a lot of stuff there where like your pain might not be, again, directly caused by that event, but the situations that keep leading you to worsen that pain or to right. get you into situations which do cause that pain might be caused by your event. So there's a lot of validity to these theories, I think, when you look at them even just with that that tweak sometimes. Mm. Yeah, it, he mentions, uh, Dr. Sarno mentions a lot about a fight, flight, or freeze. Mm-hmm. And he says that the cause of a lot of these ailments is lack of oxygen, like lack of blood flow and lack of oxygen getting to like certain parts of your body. Mm -hmm. And he says that's caused by being in a fight, flight or freeze mode, mm -hmm. you know, because a lot of that, because when that happens, your body uh, makes all the blood go to your vital organs and makes it so that you can run or fight or freeze yeah and uh so i what you were saying about just being keyed up all the time that that can cause it in itself maybe not yeah. maybe not directly internally but you know just the way you carry yourself day to day can yeah. actually mess up your posture mess up mm. your mess yeah. up your shoulder mess up your back mess up everything yeah and imagine if all of those resources are pre-directed to parts of your body that aren't in use or you don't need to be focusing on yeah. in that moment, then you don't get those resources for your other, <laughs> yeah. you don't get those resources for digestion or like <laughs> thinking clearly or yeah. whatever other function you need to be performing. But I think there's a misnomer too. We may have touched on this uh, in the previous one about this, but when we consider mind-body connection, I think a lot of times mind gets construed as like consciousness body connection like yeah it's the mind where you think you're this everlasting soul that's that's existing in this shitty vessel for a while mm -hmm. and it's like the mind is also an input device you know like the yeah. mind is also just the thing that 
stimuli flow into and then send directives to the body. Like that's just a physical function of the mind. So like, mm -hmm. of course there's a connection because, you know, I'm choosing to move my arm in relation to something that just happened in my world or like just ducking when something gets whipped at you is proof of a mind-body connection. So it makes complete sense that that can go deeper than simple momentary reactions to things. Like sure. It can even just be perceived reactions to perceived things, like that kind of stuff. Yeah, we, we did talk a little bit about the vagus nerve and polyvagal theory mm. and, and that kind of stuff. Because so. like your subconscious and your conscious like, can both be connected to your body, and but a lot of people just overlook the subconscious mm. and how mm. that, that can relate to your body as well as like making conscious decisions, like you were saying, ducking. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is that like when we process stimuli or sensory information through the vagus nerve, it takes, I'm not going to get all the anatomy of this correct, but it takes longer for the logical brain to ascertain that something is safe than mm. it does for the vagus nerve to transmit that information to the parts of your body that are going to go into fight, flight, or, fight, flight, or freeze and have that immediate response, right? So a loud noise that's happening a few feet away from you that is very sudden is going to seem like a threat for, a, I don't know, like a quarter of a second or something before you're actually able to logically process that it isn't. Mm. Or like the tone of someone's voice can do that too. If someone is coming at you in a way that seems like aggressive, but they're being friendly, but it's easy to interpret that sensory information as aggressive or threatening, then guess what? You're going to be threatened. And that tension <laughs> is going to stay with you for a few seconds before you can calm yourself down. So even if that sensory information is completely benign and innocuous, you're still going to process that through the structures in your body that tell you when to be threatened and how to react to that threat. Mm. But that's all the more reason to know how to do the work when you are feeling that tension or feeling that stress pain. Yeah. Because you're going to have to know how to unwind yourself. And I mean, I love approaches like this sometimes because they feel like a good antidote to, you know, that dichotomy that sometimes gets tossed around. Like we have like our caveman self, like we have all these yeah. impulses and drives and things that have existed for millennia. Our, and then we our have wizard our like, brain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then we have like our postmodern like society, like we couldn't survive for an instant if we were left in the woods camp, you know, that whole side of it. And I think this type of approach and others like it help you sort of thread that needle where like you get to acknowledge and keep these reactionary drives that have saved human lives for mm -hmm. millennia. But we also get to look at them with kind of an intellectual lens that's a little bit more suited for a postmodern existence where like you might have a fight or flight reaction because you might need to fight or fly given certain situations, but it's not always going to be appropriate. So it's like, keep the tool in the toolbox, but like, you know, sharpen the blade every so often and make sure it's still being used the right way. Like, I think there's such a great power in that because both camps have a lot that's right about them. Right. And a lot of it's about like contextualizing those like base reactions that we've had for, for years. Cause, cause like, you know, we, we live in a world where we aren't necessarily adapted to, like we aren't we're maladaptive to today's life because those 
primordial parts of our brain are gonna be overstimulated mm-hmm. and that's what puts us into like fight or flight mode all the time especially like in a world where we're constantly connected on the internet and we got to worry about like public image and things like this that weren't on the minds of people back then yeah we're really we're doing our descendants a big favor by fork up by uh <laughs> braving all this shit <laughs> Yeah, well, hopefully we are. Could get worse. Who knows? Could you define the vagus nerve for me? Um, hang on one second. I assume it has to do with Las Vegas. And yeah, I was just going to say, like, if we didn't make Vegas puns on the last one, we got to go on this one. Yeah, right. <laughs> this old town's filled with sin. It's the sin nerve. <laughs> Luckily, Science Mike always puts indexes in his books. <laughs> Vegas nerve, page 85, 86. This is a new-ish book by Mike McCarg called You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass. (laughs) Embracing the emotions, habits, and mystery that make you, you. The nerve that connects our guts and our brains is called the vagus nerve. It's a bit of a rock star in the world of your nervous system. That's because the vagus nerve connects key structures in your brain, like the mandula oblongata, to your heart, your diaphragm, and yes, your enteric nervous system. Much like the crocodile dog human team in your head, that must have been a reference to a previous page, (laughs) the nerve systems in your body respond to stressors in different ways and at different speeds. In recent years, scientists have developed a newer, more nuanced model for understanding how our bodies respond to escalations in our environment. It's called polyvagal theory. Because the vagus nerve is not a single nerve, but instead a complex signaling system that runs between our brain stems and critical organs. This model tries to explain why we experience more than just fight or flight in response to challenging situations. After all, life isn't as simple as, it's all good, or we have to fight, is it? Our nervous systems have to navigate a much more complicated world, especially when it comes to social interactions. The polyvagal theory model offers a three-tiered view of our involuntary nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system still handles the fight-or-flight response when in high arousal, but in this view, the parasympathetic system isn't just the chill network, because when the parasympathetic nervous system is highly aroused, it can also invoke a trauma response, freeze or faint. Did that answer your question? Yeah, that okay. sums it up, though. That, that's right. very, that is very related. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll lend you that book, actually. It's very good. But this actually just made me think, um, like that passage and something that I think Joe was saying earlier just made me think, when do you think we started to simulate these situations that would like, you know, trigger these reactions that would trigger the vagus nerve and, and uh, fight or flight reactions and stuff? Like, do you think that primordial people were doing that in some way? Or do you think that was a later development because that's something i could see being an issue with post-modernity that like people we now have so many more fake ways of feeling those real 
deep rooted feelings, you know? You mean at one point in our development, did it stop being chased by the tiger and start being something that felt like being chased by the tiger? Yeah, it start being like chased by a linebacker, you know, like yeah, when did yeah, it? Yeah. Or is that what is that what a linebacker does? <laughs> I actually just realized I don't know if they fucking run. I think they they tackle. Yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> I feel like there are so many things now, especially that we all connect in a digital sphere right. that are really just kind of facsimiles of very real world situations that I feel like we have the equipment to deal with and this desire to deal with, but we don't practically need to deal with all the time. Like think about the analogy some people have drawn between sports and war. Mm-hmm. Like we, we play football and stuff because we we want to fight, we want to strategize, we want to be using the same techniques that we would use in a war, mm. but we don't want to constantly be at war. And it was much more literal, like in, you know, gladiator days, but we're more evolved. I feel like the tiger, the fabricated tiger in our mind is a societal. I mean, a lot Mm -hmm. of, from the beginning of civilization, I'm, I'm sure from there, that's when all these different complexities arose and made it so that we, kind of fabricate these worries but like it makes me wonder what level of comfort we hit as a species that made us start reaching back into that scary place that's what i was going to say though is that like it had to be at a point where some needs were taken care of enough so that these things were a surprise it's like when somebody gets sober and they're like completely abstinent and then they hit a point of comfort with it where they're like Oh, and it's a beer. It's not hard liquor. And, you know, and mm-hmm. it's like, that'll be fine. Like when you start saying, all right, I'm 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 secure enough in whatever plan I had an, originally enacted that you start feeling the confidence to double back. Like, I wonder if there was some species wide version of that or even just, a, a, you know, a microcosm of it that sort of filtered out eventually that we just started to simulate this because that's what so many things on the Internet are and so many things in entertainment are and... I mean, there's just countless examples of that where like we're we're clearly pulling from real world things or from very biological things that we have. But mm-hmm. it's like we're just trying to use this shit that we have lying around. I mean, it's a compulsion for adrenaline, probably. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, mm. for some people, but like, you know, other people just fear having adrenaline or, or fear getting into situations where they have. Like yeah, I, me, <laughs> I just hate. I hate competition, man. I don't know. Oh, same. Really, yeah. I just. <laughs> I have Matt number. loves it. I, I don't like. I it. like it too, in a way. <laughs> I don't like all of it, but no. But I mean, think about even like when COVID initially hit. I couldn't play gigs anymore, like all of us. And my an immediate reaction was I started mountain biking. Yeah. Again, like right away. Right. And I realized after a few weeks that it was because I missed that like turned on feeling. Like when you walk out on stage and you hear people and you're like, I better not screw this up. And there's that terror. Cause I get like crazy stage fright. So it's mm-hmm. like, I missed oh. having that like locked in. You're thinking a millisecond ahead a bunch of times in a row. Like, I just, I don't know. I realized like, Oh, that's like a part of me now. It, at least it is now. I don't know if it always was, but mm. it's a skill set that I form some aspect of my day around. And, uh, it just makes me wonder how generalizable stuff like that is. My immediate reaction was to redecorate. <laughs> <laughs> I started walking, walking very long distances. Mm, yeah. 
But uh, I mean, it sounds like the mountain biking thing is like a flow state thing. Yeah, exactly. Crave crave Mm. that flow state. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not like an adrenaline junkie by any means, but I I am definitely a flow state junkie. That's that's the exact term I was looking for. I think we all are talking about that in a way. Mm. Whether it's mountain biking or long walks or decorating a room, like it is all flow state. It is all just like getting lost in a task. Yeah. And that's a great thing. Yeah. That's where mind doesn't betray us, where the mind kind of helps us along. Yeah. And that's also where our needs are taken care of so that if you're going for a long walk or going mountain biking, you probably don't have to worry about a predator. Yeah. Hopefully. Now we wiped all them out. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, I got a bobcat now. Yeah? Yeah, it leapt out of the tree the other day. I was out there having a smoke at four in the morning and a bobcat leapt out of a tree. Oh, shit. Very nearby. (laughs) You do not live in an area where I'd expect to see a bobcat. Yeah. No, that, uh, that was like my second thought. Yeah, I haven't told anybody this. I'm probably going to edit this out. I swear to God, I saw a demon the other night. (laughs) Tell me more. (laughs) It was rainy. I did not have my high beams on, so I couldn't see it very well. But I saw what I could have sworn was a deer running across the street. And then the deer had an enormous wingspan and it flew up into the trees and beyond. And I have no idea what to make of it. Did you see the Jersey Devil? Yeah. <laughs> the <Maybe>. Jersey Devil. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> what runs like a deer but then can sprout wings and fly off? And it was like, you know what the it Jersey looked like? The Jersey Devil. <laughs> <laughs> I got to Google the Jersey Devil. <laughs> that's, oh, that's crazy, That's man. wild. <laughs> yeah. Was it like a big deer, like a? Okay, like a... What the, that's exactly what I saw. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. What? <laughs> How did I not know about that's this? That's a legend. It's a. That's a real. Uh, that's like Bigfoot for the the tri-state area. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well. I think that there are demons and they are in our midst. And you were sober. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it could be. You have to leave this in so that it can be the episode title, dude. Or honestly, <laughs> even if you don't, it should be the episode title. <laughs> I saw a demon yesterday. There and are it was demons in there. And it was in exactly our mind. <laughs> what I have been picturing when I've been trying to conceptualize what the hell this thing was. <laughs> I knew it. They're among us. What? (laughs) You guys, I'm not okay. Where do we leave off? <laughs> I think you said there are demons and they are amongst us. Yeah, before that. Yeah, that's well. That's where my my train derailed. <laughs> that's where our heads are at now. Yeah. <laughs>
Um, oh, probably fight or flight or something like that. We were talking yeah. about the vagus nerve. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess I we I haven't asked Matt yet. Um, is this something that you've explored in therapy at all? From from either end, either the like embodiment side of it or the TMS side of it. I've explored it at least kind of indirectly. I've struggled with the hypochondria as well, so it's it's been more of that angle. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've. I've explored a lot into just putting like the right labels around things and, and kind of trying to use stuff like pain as information. Mm-hmm. And, Name it, feel it. Yeah. Cause that was something that I, I really kind of struggled with a lot when I was in my like early, early twenties, late teens, like just, I don't know that existential crisis that can happen at that time. Like they, I always had this sense that there's a use for a lot of this stuff, even if I don't know what it is yet. Like there's so much of this and if I'm this fundamentally flawed or this like just fucked up as a person, like how am I still alive? How am I still functional? Cause that was always the kind of weird thing was like, you know, it, it just always felt useful. Like when I would be on the road or whatever, I would be able to um, turn a lot of the same types of anxiety or the same types of like depression that would turn into physical pain here. They would become assets, you know? And like, mm-hmm. so yeah, I've done a lot of considering from that point of view, but um I've had a complicated relationship with this stuff as well because I've been my whole life probably like a equally sickly and ambitious person. Mm-hmm. Like I've always wanted to like climb mountains and stuff, but I've got just like crap ligaments. So there's like a lot of little relationships like that within me that are uh, constantly giving me trouble. And so I don't know that I've arrived at any kind of a healthy place with it, but I've definitely flitted through different perspectives over the years, yeah. Yeah. Right now, my current stance is sort of like a innocent until proven guilty approach to my body. Like, it's got to be real pain for me to dignify it. Like, that's not the best, but that's right. kind of what I've been doing the last year or so. Well, I guess I relate to that because from the angle, from the TMS angle that Joe was talking about, a lot of the supposed ailments that I might feel over time if they're chronic or if they only last for a couple of weeks or so, like that could just be the result of stress manifesting as pain or stress manifesting as some kind of discomfort in my gut over or, or in my back more likely. So <laughs> from, from the TMS angle that might give me hypochondria mm. <laughs> if it's just, you know, from a stress stimulus, but manifesting physically, then I'm going to be like, Oh my God, what's wrong with me? And not think of it as stress, but thinking about it as I'm just, probably going to die soon and (laughs) and even if it isn't the sole culprit it could be compounding it like it could be compounding those feelings Mm -hmm. regardless it's okay to approach it from this angle because you know it won't hurt right to use it as an emotional barometer won't make your pain worse yeah i was thinking about the chain reaction of it too and that like if i ended up there then i might experience the hypochondria which causes me to dissociate from the body (laughs) which causes me to you know need to go back into feeling and trying to reconnect with the body again so like the ways in which these two angles are just extremely connected and uh are both ways in which we need to be aware of what our body is telling us Mm. you know or like right how our body is trying to actually protect us or try to engage us in the understanding of our emotions is really important. But again, like, like I said at the beginning of this, what I've been finding helpful 
is at least the attempt to sit with a feeling and separate the emotion from the feeling. Because when I, when I did that the first time, I landed on, you know, I'm afraid that my feelings won't be considered. I'm afraid that the consequence something has for me or the effect something ha- that a decision has on me won't be considered by the person making the decision. Mm-hmm. You know, and like there's a deep-seated insecurity that I won't be um, taken into account. Yeah, that's a that's probably one of your core fears. One of the core fears. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. But I separated that from that tension and that um, those like palpitations that I was feeling in the moment. Just you know, it was this feeling like I like I needed to get away. It was this mm-hmm. feeling like I'm not safe, so I have to escape. But then the core fear is just that I don't trust uh, whoever's will I'm being suggest subjected to mm. is going to um, take care of me, is going to see me and see my needs. So mm. that causes me to want to escape. So separating those allows you to kind of like rejoin them later and say, yeah. like, this is how they're connected. But the unhealthy reaction, and again, maybe this isn't like a hundred percent true. This is what I found for this specific experience. But like the unhealthy reaction is to keep them together the whole time, and just react to the emotion with the feeling. Where I, you know, and to be reactive at all to it in any other way than trying to understand what the feeling is is usually how we end up making rash decisions and hurting ourselves and others in response to feeling hurt. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, it kind of comes back to what Joe was saying, like, there's such a value in, like, looking at approaches like these in the sense that they won't hurt you worse. And there can be such a terror around looking deep into these things sometimes where you you feel like, this already sucks. What if I break it any worse than it already is sometimes? You know, like, I've had that where, like, I don't even want to look at certain things because I'm like, I can't take this being any more painful than it is. Yeah. I can survive this. This sucks, but I can work with this. But if it goes up a level, I have no idea. And I wonder how common that is sometimes as a roadblock for people who are, you know, afraid to look into themselves because it's sort of like the, I think I've compared it to this before, but it's like the, have you ever screwed around with your computer and there's like that section of the settings that's like, do not click past this point unless you know how to code, like a little thing comes up. Mm-hmm. That's how I feel like sometimes um, introspection can be viewed or like self-therapy can be viewed for people yeah. where I've always enjoyed that from my own mind and my own body. Cause it's just always felt like, I don't know, I'm stuck with my approach has always been like, I'm stuck with this and I'm going to learn how to fix it over the course of my life or learn how to use it or whatever. But not everyone I know has that same desire to screw around in that sandbox. And maybe that's how it feels to some people that like, this isn't, this is like two hands on, you know? Right. Cause at its heart, those physical manifestations are like a coping mechanism. Yeah. They're trying to make you avoid feeling your feelings properly, like yeah. feeling your emotions properly, I should say. But, um, your body's trying to protect you mm-hmm. because your body feels as if you cannot deal with going any deeper into why you're feeling the way you are. Yeah. So it compensates by distracting you. Yeah. And it's adaptive in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
That's a good point. But in the long run, if you end up getting chronic pain from it, like from ignoring those feelings and ignoring what may be causing it, then it can only get worse over time. Right. You know what I mean? And I think that opens up as there's a weird um, downside to anthropomorphizing or intellectualizing too far with some of these things. It was once explained to me, like looking at things like panic attacks in purely physical terms can Mm. be a way of uh, sort of diffusing them. And I've found a lot of success just specifically with those, but also with so many other things that would have been hypochondria if I hadn't paid attention or would have been like physical or psychic pain in some way. It's just looking at them like, this isn't my body trying to tell me anything. This isn't my mind trying to make sense of his existence. This is a spike in cortisol mm-hmm. that is now making this seize up. That's all that's happening. It's like your transmission gets fucked up. That doesn't have to be God's will. That can just be you didn't get a tune-up when you should have. Mm-hmm. And it's seized because it's out of oil or it's out of grease or whatever the hell happens. And I found a weird piece in looking at it like that when an intellectual approach stopped being comforting. Mm. There have been a few points in my life where I've kind of just gotten a lot of comfort out of that, like looking at it like it's just chemical reactions. It's just even like lately I've been struggling a lot. Like I've been really getting into biking and stuff the last couple of years. And it's one of my favorite things to do right now. It's just the way that I de-stress and the way that I deal with my shit. But I'm also, like I said, I'm very sickly still. And so there's every time I come back, like I have migrating knee pains. I have whatever the hell's going on. It moves yeah. around. Exactly. And I'm always like, why? How could it that's, even be an injury? <laughs> it's your mind. Your mind's yeah. distracting you. No, but it's that's crazy. what got me thinking about it was I've read into like, what the fuck does knee pain mean? And I found out that a, on a bike, medial, meaning like inside knee pain is often because your seat's too low. And lateral, like outside knee pain is because it's too high. And your foot position on the pedal also matters. Like, you know, it can be the front of your knee can hurt versus the back. Like, you can get hamstring shit. Like, and so I started, like, paying attention to what these things mean in relation to the types of pain that I had. And I realized that as I get tired, I shift a certain way, kind of unconsciously, but I just sit in a different position. And certain muscles, like, in my back get tired and cause me to put less emphasis on my, like, seat in my posture. And I'm just starting to see that, like, all right, when I'm stressed or when I don't feel well or when I'm really fucking tired and I do a ride anyway, I do it this way. And when I'm feeling all energetic and jazzed up and, like, I can, like, kick the world's ass, I get more aggressive and I ride more, like, I lean forward more physically and stuff like that. And started to realize I get, like, different types of pain because of different mental states that I'm in. But they're in my knee. Like there couldn't be a more distant mind-body connection than (laughs) the front of my knee and the back of my mind. So it's kind of like, you know, I just started thinking about that a whole lot and realizing that like this doesn't have to be an existential thing. This could just be when I'm really tired, I don't have as much strength in my lower back because those muscles are weaker and I slide forward and that causes this to take all the weight and that hurts. And it just got so much simpler as soon as I started looking at it that way. And now I feel that tweak and my body indirectly tells me like, Hey, this is what's going on. And I respond by like, oh, okay, let me consciously put some weight on the outside of my foot because I think I'm screwing up here. And mm. I find that to be empowering sometimes because I get very, it can get overstimulating, you know, when you try to make it mean something at a certain point, you know? Well, and that's, you're doing a taxing physical activity mm. so that, you know, so long as you know how to shift properly, you can, you can definitely, uh, 
rectify that without having to go like, oh shit, what childhood thing is making yeah. me feel this way? <laughs> but that's why I liked it. Like I've kind of, I've called biking like a parable generator sometimes. Like it's just kind of going out and you get this real time, very literal way of representing things that can be applied to other areas of life or the psyche. And I, uh, I've been able to apply some of those same approaches to like past traumas or to um, even just other aspects of like mental health and mental states. Like I can tell like if I'm in a certain, uh, if I have to write a lot one day and I'm in a certain headspace or I've got certain stuff going on afterwards, no matter how it impacts my schedule, it's better to clear those obligations because they'll put me in a specific type of stress and that won't be induced. So it's like, there's all sorts of weird parallels there, but yeah, long story short, I, th I find sometimes there's equal value in looking at stuff purely mechanically, like an engineer as opposed to a poet, you know. I've had tendonitis in like both of my hands since about like 2018 and between then and now I had tried like body work, physical therapy, well occupational therapy, acupuncture, stretches, massaging my arms. I've tried all these things and none of them have really made it diminish mm. much. And you know, it could just be I play a lot of guitar. It could <laughs> Just be that. But there was this weird coincidence that my, my therapist pointed out to me as I was like discussing it. Because I, in 2018, right before I went back to school, um, my father passed away. And then I kind of just white-knuckled my way through the semester and like white-knuckled my way through like working while going to school. And yeah. it just made me ignore a lot of things. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. you know, ignore my my state. And then right when I went back home, I started to get... Well, it was right at the end of the semester as like things were winding down. I was starting to get twinges. Mm. Before that, I had no signs of, of any pain. And like, and I didn't really play all that excessively. I had played way more excessively in the past. Mm. But... What my therapist kind of pointed out to me was like, your body may have done this to distract you from feeling uh. something properly. And so like, you know, it didn't cure it, but it is significantly like less swollen. And I really, I just use it as a way of assessing my mental state at this mm -hmm. point where it's like, and then usually when I approach it from that angle, I end up feeling better, like mm -hmm. at least physically better. But yeah, that's been most of the my journey with it is like trying all the different physical ways that it could have been diminished, not having them really work in the long run. Yeah. And then finally approaching it from the angle of the connection between your mind and your body yeah. and using pain as like a coping mechanism because it's trying to distract you from feeling it properly. Yeah. Do you think you, like, I mean, obviously tendonitis sucks, but <laughs> is there a usefulness to that now, just as like a, as a barometer, as such a conscious way of being able to tell 
oh, there might be something psychically going on that I need to look at. Is there like any part of you that is glad to have it? I mean, besides no. like it hurting <laughs> like a bitch, like because tendonitis, yeah, it's not a good time. <laughs> and maybe not to the degree either that you have it. But It is. Well, it is. It's fascinating because it's, I can usually have some sort of gauge of how I'm feeling yeah. physically. Maybe not directly related, but like, I don't know. It, it's like when I feel bad physically, I usually feel bad mentally. Yeah. That's pretty much what it comes down to. But I've also fixed my technique a lot. Because yeah. like, you know, I'm trying to like, let the amp do the work, trying to let gravity <laughs> do the work. And yeah. I always get it when I go up to like fatter strings. I get a, a week or two of just horrible swelling and pain. Seriously? Yeah. Just like, I think I death grip the neck until I get accustomed to the um, the new touch, like the new feel. Like I, I will go, I play 12s usually. Oh, and yeah. That, okay, that'll... Whenever I go from like 11s-ish to 12s, there's always a week of like, oh God, this is a fucking mistake. But then <laughs> it stops and, and I don't know. Weird, but that used Be to be horrible when I was younger. You ever stretch like that? Oh yeah, it's the I only way that. I can play. Shots. I do that. I do that all the time. <laughs> yeah, feels so good. I've yeah, I've kind of gotten to the point where I'm like, they're gonna have to pry the guitar out of my cold dead fingers, no yeah. matter what. Like, yeah. In the books that that Doctor Sarno guy writes, he he says he's like, you shouldn't let your body win. <laughs> like you shouldn't. You should resume physical activity. You should make sure it's not holding you back because a very good amount of it could be from your mind. And honestly, yeah, I've been playing four-hour gigs and stuff like that, and like yeah. no, nothing really has incapacitated me. I like that approach a lot. Yeah, like because it's. I mean, it's true. Like it's a the body is a is just full of limits sometimes, yeah. at least for a little while, and. Mm. I don't know, why listen? If there is something that can drag it along through the mud, then why not use hmm. that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of testimonials of people, like, with all sorts of, like, back pain and stuff like that, and they tell them to resume physical activity, and then the more they get used to using their body normally, the more the symptoms ease up, and mm. the more they they try to practice mindfulness and... See, every time I say it out loud, it sounds like witchcraft. Like it sounds, <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like hocus pocus. Yeah, but I'm telling you, I mean, from experience, it helps me, and I'm I'm just one of many cases. Yeah, no, I think there's a lot of validity to it, especially if it's helping you. And yeah, like who gives a shit? It's working. Yeah, That's right. great. <laughs> so, but no, I I see what you mean because it. Like I said earlier, like I think a lot of stuff like the Freudian approaches give these types of anything that's not hard science a little bit of a bad rap, and deservedly so in a lot of cases. But there's other cases where I think it's just maybe it's not being framed correctly. Maybe it's triggering some old biases or things. Maybe there's just even more to it sometimes. Because some, we've talked about this on, I feel like when we did a uh, book club on the Four Agreements or something like that, we... Uh, we talked about how some of these things, even by the time they reach us in the population, they've been sort of filtered down and, and diluted to some extent. So we're not even reading, like if we were capable of reading the original scientific text in certain fields, as literately as a person who finished med school, then maybe these things would seem more or less valid in certain cases too. So at the end of the day, if it's working, if it checks out to you, then give it a shot. 
It sounds like a goofy game of telephone or something. Yeah. Like. I mean, I recently read, uh, I could only get access to the abstract, but a study about um, nicotine and um, early cognitive impairments. Whoa. Really? And at first glance, I was like, you've got to be shitting. There's no way in hell. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that that just sounds like a, like cigarette companies trying to jump on whatever lifeboat is leaving them. And like... Reading the study, I was also I was reminded that I'm not a doctor, and I was also able to pick up certain things from just sitting there and trying to understand it. But it kind of made that light bulb go off. That like, all right, like I, I see where this is coming from. If I when I read, I actually read a Dear Abby of it, and then I read the actual abstract and the difference in the wording on those two. The Dear Abby made me think this is absolute horseshit. There's no way this isn't a ploy. And then the abstract, I was like, no, okay, like. Scientifically, it holds up, and medically, from what I can gather from it, and I've checked it against a few people now, and they've explained it to me as well, and, you know, it, it holds more water. So it kind of got me thinking about that, that some of these things that seem like hocus-pocus might be in the language that we're consuming them, but, you know, it's worth looking deeper sometimes. And they, there's always this disclaimer with the, the stuff that Dr. Sarno does. He always says, like, you should rule out any physical causes first. Yeah. Which is kind of what I did over the past couple of years with the, the occupational therapy, the body work, the acupuncture. You should try the physical ways of curing it first, and if those don't work, there may be something else going on. So I was thinking about, you know, not being able to feel something in your body or feeling it too much in your body. You still, either way, you run into this problem of taking up space. And I think that a big reason to avoid feeling is because you, you know, you're taking up physical space. To avoid the emotion, to dissociate from the emotion is to avoid taking up too much emotional space. um, Because that is certainly, even though it's in your head, very palpable sometimes in in the energy around us. So I think there's this idea that, you know, as I was saying earlier, like the fear of not being considered, the fear of not having your needs taken care of, if that also translates into the fear of not showing up in your life, not showing up in your world, or not being able to count on other people to hold space for you so that you can show up, then like, of course, you're going to be wary of taking up an amount of space that you might feel guilty for taking up or might feel that like they're just it just isn't there so that is a big burden that I have been trying to ease over time by holding more space for myself and I think that that's what this one exercise this one experience really allowed me to do with a lot more ease was just Once I can process the feeling through the body, then there's more space intellectually and emotionally to truly hold space for yourself. And then you can hold space for others as well. And through this experience, I actually came to a big realization 
that was just all about the importance of holding space for people's emotions, which is not always easy to do, you know, and it's a, it's certainly a valid fear that some people won't hold space for you because it can be hard to hold space for other people if it's even that hard to hold space for yourself. And the mm. worst part is it's sometimes it can be misconstrued as selfishness when, yeah. when in reality you're just, everything's cluttered. Right. Everything feels cluttered. Yeah, but there is very real emotion be, behind it. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of power and a lot of value and in holding space for your own emotions and processing them correctly so that you can healthily hold space for others' emotions. Because I think, like, we often try, right? But we're doing it as martyrs and not <laughs> holding the proper amount of space for ourselves and That's only take care of others' needs. We're turning us into... We've talked about compassion fatigue before, me and Matt, and uh, oh yeah, I came across this information about Mother Teresa that she would insist that the nuns that she was working with doing relief work, she would insist that after I think four years of uh, like quote unquote active duty, that they take one year to rest and recover because like you need wow. that much time in order to just process what you've dealt with, you know, especially in that kind of relief work. Of course you do. I can't imagine not getting like five vacations a year from that. Are you kidding? <laughs> but I think like we need to learn how to hold space for ourselves first and process what we feel and ease that burden by separating the feeling from the emotion. And this is new territory for me too, because like I've been, told for you know almost a year now in therapy to focus on separating feeling from thought but then i really sorted out separating feeling from emotion as in physical feeling from cognitive emotion you know and i would classify that differently from thought well i guess it, i guess it's about parsing out what your your physical feelings your emotions your uh it's about parsing them out to understand how they may be connected. Mm -hmm. And if you neglect one, you may yeah. also end up neglecting the other things. I'm glad that you put it like that because that is, it's parsing them out. It's itemizing them almost right. and realizing naming that, them, naming them, compartmentalizing them, subclassifying them. And that way they don't have to take up that much space. You know, when they're all aggregated then you need a big compartment to hold that mm. amount of space. And that's why it's overwhelming to think, how could anybody possibly hold that kind of space for me? So much bandwidth. Yeah. And if you see it that way in others, of course, you can't hold space for them either. But once you recognize that, um, I learned this word recently, disaggregate. Once you disaggregate <laughs> um, <laughs> these, uh, these different elements and give them their own space, Individually, they don't need that much space, and then you can work on them piece mm. by piece. And then it's really not that hard to see the pain of others in the same way that you would start to see the pain, your own pain. Mm. You know, and it's much easier to say, like, yeah, I can hold space for that, and I can hold space for myself. And that's our show. Black Market Therapy is a Dead and Mellow production. And to stay in touch with us, you can follow Black Market Therapy and Dead and Mellow Records on social media. And if you have any questions or concerns, you can send an email to blackmarkettherapypodcast at gmail.com. 
This episode was scored using the rough mixes from Midnight Harvest's upcoming release. For more from them, make sure you stay up to date with Midnight Harvest and Joe Folan. You can, of course, find their music on Bandcamp or any other streaming services. And we will be back in a few weeks with an episode about wasted years, and we'll try to find out whether they were really wasted. Until then.